Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Well, welcome back, everybody. I didn't see any of you at church last week. Uh, Thank you very much. You uh, sent me as a church back to minister with our brothers and sisters in Cuba. And uh, I I got back on Friday night. Today's Sunday. I got, yeah, Friday night is when I got back. And um, it was a wonderful time. And I, I would love if you would be willing just to indulge me for a second to take you on a little five-minute tour of Cuba. Is that okay? Yeah. Do it with me? Okay. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of Cuba, they think of something like this, and it is a beautiful place, and it is a wonderful place, and it, it, every bit of an island paradise that you would think about, Cuba is. This is the city of Havana. We arrived there, and we left from there, uh, and yet our ministry was out in uh, a rural community. Other people, when they think of Cuba, they think of this, uh, because that's what we see on our our news, and that's what is advertised, is uh, all of these old cars. But the fact of the matter is, these old cars, uh, and some of you could tell me what those old cars are, and one of the guys that I was with could have told me what those old cars are. Uh, I know they are modes of transportation from one place to another. Uh, But uh, these are really a symbol of what is happening in Cuba, and that is this. They have a bunch of old cars because you can't import any new cars, at least American cars, since 1959. Uh, Cuba has been under embargo from the United States. And uh, so uh, most of the cars over there don't look like this. This is, this is for the tourists. And uh, most of the cars are, are old or, and or Russian and or some other uh, variety of car. Uh, when I think of Cuba, I think of the ministry that uh, the Lord has enabled me to, to be a part of, and I'm so grateful for that. This time we went down, and this was our team. Uh, we're standing at one of the churches. Um, that'd be an awful place to have a church, right? Right on the beach. Yeah, well, that was where their church was. And uh, this is our team that we were with this time. On the left is Casey. He's from Bethany Baptist Church in Salem, Oregon. He's the associate pastor there. Uh, next to him is Rick. And Rick is a missionary to uh, Hispanic people and Spanish-speaking people in the Pacific Northwest with uh, ABWE. And uh, then next to him, you may realize, uh, third from the left, second from the right, you may recognize him. That's Eric Garcia. He's one of our missionaries. And Eric uh, married Abby Putman. They live in Mexico. Uh, they're with the Noe Center down there. And Eric came as our translator. And uh, was a wonderful Uh, privilege to minister with him. He did an amazing job. And then the ugly guy on the right is me. Uh, So this was our team for ministry. And uh, ministry consisted of a lot of different things. But, um, you know, a lot of it is ministering to and encouraging the people. So we did a lot of this. Uh, We ate a lot of food. And uh, a lot of it was just spending time with pastors, hearing what is going on, trying to encourage them because things are challenging in ministry. Things are challenging in life on the island of Cuba. So this is at Pastor Diospel's church, uh, Pastor Diospel's living room, which is also his church. Ed preached there the last time we were there. And um, uh, we just enjoyed time talking, fellowshipping, uh, hearing how we could pray, uh, um, hopefully being an encouragement to them uh, uh, in the situations they're in. One question that everyone always wants to know, uh, what did you eat? Is Cuban food amazing? No, not really. Um, (laughs) It is, and the people are gracious and hospitable, but you get a lot of the same food, chicken and rice. So I didn't take a lot of pictures of that, but every once in a while you get something interesting. And so our host caught fish in the ocean for us, and so this was one meal that stood out for us. Um, uh, you eat a lot of rice and beans and yucca and plantains and every other starch that you can imagine and um, then a little bit of protein. But this was an awesome meal, although I'm not sure how much I liked having my food look at me. Um, 
But I didn't get the ones with fangs. The other, guy got, the other guys got the ones with fangs. Um, but here's the truth of the matter, is um, in, their, um, in their humble, <laughs> humble poverty, if I can say it that way, the people are amazingly hospitable and gracious to us. Um, the fact that you get um, a limited variety of food is reflective of the fact that the people are really struggling. Here's a for instance. I wrote these statistics down. Uh, a couple of years ago, the government would ration, uh, the government rations all the food, but the government rationed seven pounds of rice per person per month. Uh, they are now at the place where each person gets one pound of rice per month. Now, just because they ration it doesn't mean they get it for free. They still have to buy it. Um, but uh, things are just deteriorating on that island. Uh, everyone gets one piece of bread per day, uh, at least that they, are, that they are able to buy for themselves. And the average salary is about $30 per month. And so it's just this beautiful place with incredible people, and yet they're facing all of these challenges. And uh, some of that was represented in, in the way we interacted with them. Um, uh, some of the other of our ministry just was spent going out and spending time with people. So this is Luis on the top left and Marlene on the bottom right. They're married. Uh, Luis was out planting and working the field. Um, you can't really see it, but he had a, a pair of oxen that was plowing that field, and it was just amazing to watch. So Luis works in his field all, all day, all week, and then he preaches at his church on Sunday, and uh, uh, he has a cool and amazing ministry, and he's part of our class during the week as well. Marlene runs a, a ministry for uh, about 400 or more um, people that the Cubans call disadvantaged, and so they're uh, more impoverished than the average Cuban, and she just uh, reaches out to them and ministers to them, meets their needs. Some of them are developmentally and um, physically disabled, and um, some of them would have no place to go other than um, being involved with her ministry, because the, the state doesn't really uh, value the life of those who are uh, less than productive, I guess. Um, our primary purpose in going to Cuba was to teach, and so uh, I've shared this with you before, but just by way of reminder, uh, our, our training comes from uh, Corbin University, and uh, so we go as representatives of them, and there's three churches involved. We're one of three churches, and uh, there's six courses in the leadership training class. So they, they were taught uh, how to study the Bible, um, and that was before pandemic, actually. An Old Testament class, a New Testament class, which uh, myself and John and Ed went and in part and taught last time. Uh, they were taught Bible doctrines, this time we taught uh, a class on uh, preparing biblical messages and pastoral ministry. And then in March, again, they'll conclude the leadership training course with a class on personal spirituality. And uh, so we, we got to teach how to preach and uh, how to do pastoral ministry or, or uh, you know, how to uh, maximize those things. And uh, it was just a great blessing to be with them. Uh, they are incredible Students, this is our class, uh, represented uh, 11 churches in the San Andres Valley, which is certainly not anywhere close to even as big as the Rogue Valley, um, but they uh, were wonderful people, amazing pastors and ministry leaders, and it was just a privilege to, to serve them and serve with them as uh, we got to minister to them, but certainly they ministered to us as well. Uh, one thing that was surprising to us is uh, one of the pastors assigned to all the other pastors that they would have some homework based on the last class. So we showed up and we said, okay, this is what we're hoping the teaching schedule will be. And they said, well, we've got some presentations. So we've got to share with you what we learned about doctrine. And uh, so they got up and they shared with us what they learned about doctrine. So they're presenting there on the doctrine of salvation and uh, just going for it. And they were amazing. They had soaked in all of this knowledge and all of this information, and they were preaching and preaching at us and preaching to us with five different groups present, and it was, uh, it was an amazing, amazing time. Um, as we left, we were praying for them, and uh, they turned around and they said, we have to pray for you too, not just you, you, but all of you. And so this morning and this week, they've been praying, and, and, and since we've met them, they've been praying for you, uh, Community Bible Church. And yes, uh, I have to admit, 
that I opened my eyes during prayer and took this picture. I don't think any of them knew. It's okay. So you know now. Uh, but a pastor came up to me and he said, hey, can you make sure, uh, this was the day, before, the day before the last class, and he said, can you make sure that you give us some encouragement? Uh, because right now things are tough. He said, um, uh, after pandemic, a lot of people didn't come back to church. And I said, oh, yeah, I kind of know that feeling. <laughs> like, yeah. And he said, but on top of that, you know, we live in Cuba. And on top of that, about a month ago, we had this hurricane. And things are just difficult. And uh, he was sharing that uh, the, the men and the women need to understand that God has not left them and that God has purposes and plans, even if we don't understand those things. Um, uh, one person shared with me, I haven't verified this statistic, so, but one person shared with me that two years ago, the population of Cuba was 11 million people. And now, right now, as we sit, the population of Cuba is 7 million people. These people are just bailing. They're getting out any way they can because things are so, so difficult. And so we had a time of prayer. We prayed for them. They prayed for us. They are praying for you right now. They just finished church. They're, they probably spent time in prayer for you in this worship service. And it's just a pretty, um, pretty amazing, pretty humbling thing. Um, so, so thank you from them. Keep them in prayer as you think about the island nation of Cuba. Uh, one of the things that you did, uh, and I was privileged on your behalf to take some money down. We sent $5,000 to them, and uh, a lot of it was for relief. So let me share with you a couple of the projects uh, that we gave towards with them. This, this fellow is named Aringo, and Aringo is handicapped physically, and you can see behind him his mode of transportation. What you can't see is that it's like an old 1950s um, wheelchair welded to the front of a bike. And, uh, and he needs some repairs because, you know, it's from the 50s. <laughs> so we gave him a little bit of money. We gave it to one of the pastors, and they're going to help him get, um, get the, the repairs that he needs in that, in that little vehicle. Uh, also, everywhere you went, this was kind of a common sight, the hurricane was a direct hit on this valley, uh, the hurricane of a month ago. And so you'll see that little pile of rubber, rubble. Everywhere you went, there was all these piles of rubble and houses that had no roofs and uh, buildings that had fallen down, some of them. Uh, one of the pastors shared that in their church, they have about 70 people in their church. Seven families have lost their homes or they're uninhabitable. And uh, so we gave... Uh, each of the churches a little bit of money to use at their discretion for the people in their church that need it the most, as well as some of the pastors and families that have uh, been displaced or, or, or had the effects. I told you about Marlene just a little earlier. She ministers to people who are disadvantaged in Cuba. We visited a, a little compound uh, that was one of the group homes, basically, I would say, that she ministers at. So this is the group home. Uh, uh, there's a gal that lives in this little cottage here. Uh, she's 95 years old, and she has dementia. She wouldn't have a facility to go to. There's no Cuban-run facilities. This is the kitchen of that little compound. It's all outdoor. And uh, so we gave some money to Marlene to help with her ministry as she ministers to those folks and spreads the gospel among them. And uh, it was inc an incredible experience to spend time with them. Um, this is Leandro, and Leandro is our, our Cuban contact. He's the guy who sets everything up, gets all the food, uh, makes all the plans, uh, communicate with him over text and, and WhatsApp. And uh, Leandro was telling us, hey, it would be really great if my church had a freezer because he, about a month or six weeks before each of the classes, he goes around the entire Havana area and he just collects food because food is so scarce. And he said, if I had a freezer, I could do that much more effectively. So uh, we were privileged with part of that money to buy him a freezer, and uh, it's in his daughter's bedroom. So um, there you go. Uh, so those are some of the things that we got to do, and it was amazing privilege. And then, of course, uh, uh, I told you that there's scarcity on the island. One of the things that is scarce is diesel fuel, and we were in a diesel vehicle, and I thought to myself, there are no gas stations out here. I hope we make it back to Havana because that's where we're flying out of. And sure enough, just as we were leaving, 
uh, we went to the gas station. Um, there it was out in the field. <laughs> Guy brought a couple jugs of diesel, loaded up the, the vehicle, and off we went. So uh, that was the trip to Cuba. I could share a lot more, but, um, uh, and if you'd like to hear more, I'd certainly love to share that with you. But again, continue to be in prayer for the folks. They are in prayer for you. All right? Let's pray for them now as we start with the word of God. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask, uh, would you uh, be with our friends, be with our brothers and sisters uh, on the island of Cuba, in the valley of San Andres, even as they meet today and they uh, put into practice some of the things that we talked about this week, preaching your word, being faithful to the word of God, allowing it to be the authority over our lives and over our preaching, God. And as we endeavor to do that this morning in this next little bit, this half hour, God, would you bless our efforts in that? Would you allow us to remember that we are submissive to your word? And that, God, you are preparing from all over the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, a people for yourself, and that at your return, we will worship you together without the barriers that we now experience. We thank you for this, and we ask that as we open to the, the book of Mark, that you would open our eyes to the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn with me to the book of Mark. We will continue in that topic that you started last week uh, as Eddie preached to us the word of God. Chapter, uh, chapter 13 of the book of Mark, verse 28 right where we left off last week. Mark chapter 13, verse 28 says this, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. See also that, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man Going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. I was reflecting on this passage, and to my mind, independent of the fact that I was going to Cuba, came our last experience in Cuba when John and Ed, two elders, came with me, and we were charged with teaching through, in one week, the entirety of the New Testament. And it was interesting to me what portions, we shared with this with you the last time, what portions of the scripture the people there were familiar with. Some of the portions they were very familiar with. And as we were teaching through and reading through some of the passages of scripture, they would from memory quote large portions, chapters of the scripture. And then there were other portions that, there, that were quite a mystery to them. And since our goal was to teach through the entire New Testament in one week. We only had a couple of minutes or at most an hour for a book or a section of Scripture. And we approached the end of the week and everyone was a little tired. Teachers, translators, pastors, ministry leaders. We were all sitting in the class and we had gone through a lot of material, but we had reserved the book of Revelation for the very last hour and a half of the very last day. It was after lunch, it was hot, it was humid, and I imagined that the attention of everyone would sort of wane and teachers and students would fizzle, fizzle out. Ed was teaching at that moment, and as he got up to teach the folks who are sitting on these hard wooden benches, they all sat up and leaned forward. 
they became more attentive. And as we started through the book of Revelation, they were alive and engaged. They told us that they'd been waiting all week for this book of the Bible. Cuba's existed for more than 60 years under an oppressive communist government, longer than most of them had been alive, longer than many of us have been alive. And they were certain that as we got into the book of Revelation, with its description of the end times, it would be a key for them to understanding what was happening to them. And more importantly, what was coming in the future and when exactly it would come. They wanted to know, as we went through the seals and the scrolls and the bowls, which one are we on right now? Because things are really, really bad, so we must be somewhere in here. When I was a freshman in high school, some of you will do the work of calculating my age when I say this, there was a book that came out. It was called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Remember that, some of you? Catchy title, interesting topic. Sold over 4.5 million copies. Um, Eddie might have mentioned to you last week, in the 20th century, that is in the 1900s, in that 100 years, there were more than 100 significant people that predicted a date for the return of Jesus. In the 21st century, that is in our century right now, these 22 years, there have already been more than 20 of those uh, date-setting events, significant ones. And yet, here we are on November 13th in the year of our Lord 2022, and Jesus has not returned yet. And lots of people love to to study the end times. They want to look for that secret key to unlock the truth. And so they go to workshops and they chart the timelines and they, um, uh, they, they, they read fiction books to help them understand. And they become obsessed with the question of when Jesus will return and exactly what will happen in the last days. And while many Christians are obsessed with understanding blood moons and signs of the times, too often what happens then is that that they ignore their responsibilities every single day as Jesus representatives on earth right here, right now in the Rogue Valley for us. That in this passage is exactly the picture of what the disciples are tempted toward. But Jesus wants them to understand that the certainty and the imminence of his return reminds them as believers, reminds them as disciples of their commission on his behalf. It reminds them of their urgency in getting to work. In last week's passage, the disciples had asked Jesus a question. Maybe you remember at the beginning of chapter 13. When will these things be? Jesus had been telling them about the destruction of the temple, and they were concerned to know the timing, what would happen after the temple was destroyed, and Jesus gives them some signs to look for. He doesn't give them a definitive answer to the question, though. Jesus' hope is that the disciples will be prepared for difficult times as the followers of Jesus. And now, again, Jesus returns to the signs of his coming in this passage. And he's still not going to answer the disciples' question, when will these things be? He's not going to answer when he will return. Instead, he is going to answer the question, what now? What then should we do in light of these times? And so in this passage, his first challenge to the disciples and by extension us, is this. My coming is certain, so know the times. Look at it there, verse 28, starting there. Jesus uses an analogy to return his disciples' attention to the importance of being aware of the signs of the season. Points to the fig tree, and he challenges the disciples, learn its lesson. 
And look at what Jesus says. Now, some of us are farmers, but not all of us. Jesus notes that when its branch becomes tender and it starts to put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. If you're like me, you sort of live in a global world and maybe you don't appreciate the seasons for all they represent other than you know you have to throw on a sweater when it gets to November or something like that. I, I can go to Costco year-round and get strawberries. We didn't used to be able to do that. But the people that Jesus is speaking to in the ancient Middle East, they have an appreciation of these, these seasons and especially how the produce comes. And so Jesus uses this analogy to teach them to discern the signs of the season. And here, Jesus points to the uniqueness of the fig tree. It's, it's unlike other trees, because unlike the almond tree that exists in the Middle East, it blossoms in the early spring, and it puts out its fruit shortly thereafter. Unlike the evergreens that exist in the Middle East, like the olive tree and that never lose their leaves. The fig tree produces its leaves in March or April. And then as it starts to bear fruit, it's into the month of June. And so when the fig tree blossoms, summer is near. And so now in the same way, Jesus points back to the signs that he's already outlined in verses 3 through 13. And in verse 29, he's very, very clear. He says this, when these things take place, you know that he is near, that is the Messiah, the Son of Man, at the very gates. Now to be clear, when Jesus mentions these things, he's going all the way back to the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple in the first few verses of chapter 13. Go back there, as a matter of fact. Let's look at it. Remember this context. Here's what verse, the beginning of chapter 13 tells us. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see all these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And so in chapter 13, when Mark records something about these things or the disciples ask about these things or Jesus talks about these things, he's talking about the destruction of the temple and the events surrounding it. And the destruction of the temple is one of those events in history that will define an era. It resets the historical timeline. It's like 9-11 or the space shuttle disaster or the Kennedy assassination, depending on the generation you grew up in. And Jesus challenges his disciples that the destruction of the temple signals the beginning of the end. At that moment, according to verse 29, Jesus is standing at the very gates. Are not people asking the same question in our day as the disciples were in their day? Are are we living in the end of times? And Jesus' answer is, yes, yes, we're living in the end times, but he means it differently often than we think about when we ask that question. Jesus' arrival on earth was the beginning of the end. In verse 30, he tells the disciples this, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And people have debated this verse. They've struggled to interpret this verse. But who is this generation? It's it's very clear. It's the generation that will observe these things. The the, the destruction of the temple and the beginning of the end. Jesus is referring back to his disciples' question in verse 4. They're asking, okay, Jesus, this is a pretty major thing that this center of our worship is going to be no longer. When is that going to happen? And sure enough, if you know your history, you know that the temple was destroyed 
just as Jesus predicted. Less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, just a few years after Mark records and wrote, writes down this gospel, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Indeed, the generation that Jesus was speaking to had not passed away yet, just as Jesus prophesied. Now, more is coming on the timeline of events of the end times. But Jesus' encouragement is that we are living in those times, right now. Ultimately, Jesus wants his disciples, he wants us to know that our focus cannot be on these fantastic events that are yet to come in the end times, but on his words, which are our guide in our mission when he leaves as he's about to do. You see, this is the last, this is really the last major teaching that Jesus offers in the book of Mark. It's sort of his farewell address. And the disciples, just like they are in the other gospels in the book of Acts, they're worried about the end of the world, but Jesus instructs them right here, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Their question all along in this gospel in particular has been, who is this guy? Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Here Jesus answers that question by saying, I am divinely equal with the Father. Because remember, the psalmist had said this, The prophet Isaiah had said that God's words are eternal. And Jesus says, the same thing's true about my words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And you and I and the disciples perhaps tend to get wrapped up in all the details. When we come to a passage like this that turns our attention to the end times, we want to map that symbolic language of Revelation or Zechariah or Daniel. We want to map it one-to-one with current events. We want to chart out the timeline and figure out where we sit with every news story that comes across our feed or is on our TV or that we read. And the disciples are interested in the same thing, but Jesus' instruction is very, very clear. The timeline is not important. From a prophetic perspective, Jesus is saying, my first coming in Bethlehem and my second coming in the clouds are two events or two acts of the same event. In his earthly ministry, he comes, he lives life as a human being, He dies, he rises again. And the natural conclusion of that is when he comes in power and in glory at the climax of all of history and he is recognized as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In all of that time, especially in the in-between, the word of God provides the people of God with the plan of God. And if you and I are aware that time is short, and by the way, if you haven't caught that message yet this morning, it is. If we're aware that time is short, we will be prepared for what is coming our way. Last week, difficulties, trials, tribulations. This week, how else should we live in light of Jesus' return? Too often we look at Jesus' command in verse 31 and we think we're being faithful to the enduring word of God if we really, really study hard, really, really try and flesh out, really, really try and cram into our brains all the details of prophecy. But instead, Jesus is saying something else. Think about it this way. Some of you played team sports growing up. Yeah? Or at least you're aware that there's such a thing as team sports? Okay. Think of those halftime speeches that your coaches gave you. They came in and helped you understand what's happening on the field, and uh, they helped you understand what the strategy was for the second half. And during that halftime speech, if the coach does it well, he reaffirms the things that are going well, he corrects the things that are going wrong, and he inspires the players to go out there and give their best effort. 
And if he's effective, the natural reaction is not to sit around and say, hey, let's talk about all the game plan again. Let's go over the philosophy of the X's and the O's. The coach has motivated his players, he's, and he's mobilized them so that their natural reaction is to return to the playing field and play like their hair's on fire. With passion, with urgency. And too many look at Jesus' words in this section, and they want to philosophize about the game plan. They want to philosophize about what we know and what we will experience. They know uh, Jesus is coming. I need to know the signs. And then their, their entire focus is on discerning those signs. That, that is not Jesus' intent. Jesus' word is our marching orders. His strategy is to bring his redemptive plan to the world. And for some reason, don't ask me why, his intention is to use you and I to do that. He's provided the redemption, just need to get the word out. We're the players in the game. We're sent out to the field to execute his game plan. Jesus' word gives Jesus' followers a clear commission on his behalf until he returns. And so in the last verses of this chapter, Jesus turns his attention to help his disciples understand that very thing, to help us understand that very thing. Jesus' coming is imminent, and so get to work. Starting in verse 32, Jesus tells his disciples a parable. Very similar to a parable he told just a couple of verses ago, chapter 12. It's a master who goes on a long journey and he's set to return. Now normally when Jesus tells a parable, he, he, he waits until the end if he's even going to explain it at all. But here, right up front, he tells his disciples the point of the parable before he even gets to the parable itself. He says, the timing of the master's return is uncertain. Despite the fact that he had given the disciples the signs of his return, Jesus explains that no one knows the exact timing except the Father. Look at verse 32. This is what he says. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And he's going to repeat this because apparently the disciples are dense, or maybe we're dense. He's going to repeat it uh, uh, three times, no one knows or you don't know in this six-verse parable. Three times he's going to say that. He wants the disciples to know that trying to determine the timing of these events is silly. It's a waste of time. Just know that Jesus is definitely coming back. We just don't know when. For that reason, he gives the disciples a twofold commission. Look at verse 33. Since his coming is sure, Jesus instructs the disciples, first of all, be on guard. Now he's given the same command a number of times in chapter 13. I'm sure Eddie talked about this. Two other times previously in this conversation, Jesus has spoken this word of caution to his disciples. He wants them to look forward and to be on the watch for his coming. In the parable, the master is gone, but each of the servants has a job in light of his certain return. And since they don't know the timing of the master's return, they are to be busy for the master. And each servant's commission is an individual responsibility, not a corporate responsibility. Look at verse 34. Jesus says this, each person has his own work. That's what he says. And now Jesus returns once again to the disciples' question from verse 4. They ask, when will these things be? Jesus answers again, don't worry about when, but focus on what. There is a task to be accomplished, and the disciples are to display confident faith and expectant vigilance. After all, according to verse 34, the master commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. 
And so the disciples are not only to be on guard, but they are also to stay awake. Jesus calls his disciples to this vigilant attitude four times in this small section. He's clear that my coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And for that reason, the disciples should stay awake. Jesus is instructing the disciples to be watchful and attentive to spiritual things. In just a few days, they're going to get a, a, a literal wake-up call. Jesus is in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he's laboring in prayer, knowing that the crucifixion is mere hours away, and he's going to make the same exact request of his disciples. Stay awake! Stay awake and pray! And then he goes back to them, and they're asleep. Can't you even stay awake for one hour? In this passage, Jesus explains in verse 35 that the master could return at any time during the night. He gives four time periods. Any time during that time, the master could return, and he should not find you asleep, verse 36. The disciples, we are to stay awake precisely because the timing cannot be known by any of us. It's indeterminate, but it's imminent. And then look at what Jesus says to his disciples. In fact, what he says to his disciples, he says, is for all of us in verse 37. He extends the lesson from the disciples to all who follow him. He says this, what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. And so the commission of every Christian is the same as the disciples. The lesson for every Christian is the same as it was for the disciples. The situation of every Christian is the same as it was for the disciples. You and I are to be on guard. We are to know the signs of the end, but just to say, they're here. It's not an academic exercise. It's a reminder that the work is urgent. We have a job to do in Jesus' temporary absence. We are to stay awake. That means we need to look for and we need to anticipate his coming. And in the meantime, we're to go about our business as if Jesus' return is the very next event that's going to happen according to Scripture. Because guess what? It is. So let me ask you this morning... Are you acting accordingly? Are, your, are you living out the commission that Jesus gave you, which is this precisely? Be my witnesses. When Jesus left earth in the book of Acts, uh, Luke was recording some, a similar conversation with the disciples, and Luke records this in chapter 1 of Acts, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord... Will you, restore, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? When will these things happen? Same question. And Jesus says to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. No one knows. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. Our job, the reason that the program is at this point paused before the first act and the second act, before Jesus' first coming and his second coming, is that he has appointed his followers who remain to be his witnesses. We're aware of the signs of his coming. The beginning of the end is already upon us. Jesus will come imminently. Are you ready? Are you awake? Are you on guard? 
Personally, you should be awake, you should be on guard, you should be ready, but you should also be awake and alert and on guard in terms of the job that you have. This idea of being a witness is not some add-on, it's not some extra, it's the only reason that Jesus has not yet returned. We talk about this, right, as a church, and we say that we're about being adopted in, being, being growing up and reaching out. And a lot of times those first two things get more publicity than the third thing, at least in our minds. Adopted in, yeah, I want to be part of the church. Growing up, yeah, I want to learn more. And those are wonderful, important things. But if they do not culminate in reaching out to your circle, those first two things are less significant than they could be. As those people who are in your life, your friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, as they watch you, do they see you living out a commission for Christ in an urgent way based on Jesus' imminent return? Or do you just sort of go about your life with priorities that evidence that are evidenced by something other than um, than that belief. For some people, <laughs> it's their career that defines their schedule, their finances, their priorities. And maybe it's a noble thing because they believe that in throwing myself into my career, I can provide for my family, I can secure their future. But has that displaced the priority of being a witness for Jesus? For other people, family takes center stage. And family is a great thing, but you say to yourself, I'm going to squeeze every last camping trip, every last soccer tournament into my schedule because time is short with my family. And that's a noble pursuit. But how does it affect your priorities? When family times becomes the defining value for your entire life, you are going to communicate to the people who are watching you in your circle, you're going to communicate to your kids that that is the priority of your life, not being a witness for Christ. And there are all kinds of things that threaten to distract us, that threaten to, to, to make us lose focus, to take us off of our target. It may be the lure of sin. It may be priorities that we've adopted from the world that become distraction. Even some good things. Maybe it's even something like obsessing about the timing and details of Jesus' return. That could be a good thing that proves to be a distraction. You and I must refuse to allow these things to distract us from the work which Jesus has left for us to do. Stay on target. In popular culture, you've certainly seen the depictions of this man. He dresses in long robes with patches on the robes, They are in a state of disrepair. He has a long, scraggly, unkempt beard, and he is standing on the corner of a busy metropolitan street corner. And he's holding a sign. And the sign says, the end is near. That person is depicted in popular culture as mentally unstable. They're depicted as a religious zealot who, whose religion has driven him to desperate measures to get out the message. And his message is simply this, watch out for the end of the world. And the audience of this popular culture is meant to mock him for his fanaticism. The, the audience is meant to ignore his warning as the talk of a crazy person. He's seen as the unstable diviner of unlikely events. The more you and I focus our message on the timing of Jesus' return, the more the world will see us as one of those religious nuts. However, I want to tell you this morning that the truth that Jesus' return is certain 
the truth that Jesus' return is imminent, that should provide us with motivation, a burning, urgent motivation to go about Jesus' business that he's left us with. The certainty of Jesus' return reminds you and I of our commission on his, on his behalf. The imminence of his return demands that urgency in fulfilling that commission. We have a job to do. And it's urgent. And it's important. So let's get to it. Father, this morning we thank you. This morning we come to you and we say uh, that there are times far too often, if I'm the one confessing this, that the distractions and the priorities of this world uh, shift our focus away from where it should be. Father, I pray that we would heed the words of Jesus this morning, that we would see the folly of the disciples uh, as something that we fall prey to and we are tempted by as well. And that, Father, our response is to look at people, to look at events with your eyes, with the eyes of your Son, knowing that we have the opportunity to be for you witnesses to be involved in the great work of redemption in telling people about the saving work of Jesus that you would, through our meager efforts, bring people into salvation, to bring people into faith and trust in you. What a, what a privilege that would be and what a moment of rejoicing that would be. God, I pray that we would see with eyes of faith and that we would act with those based on that faith for your honor, for your glory, and for the... For the, for the growth of your kingdom. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.